Section 7 of Deeds of Daring Done by Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barbara Hale. Deeds of Daring Done by Girls by Hannah Moore. Part 3. The Pearl Necklace. Chapter 5. There was one thing for which Annette's mother never lacked strength or energy, and that was the celebration of the birthdays, fate days, she called them, of the little family. There was always some little gift forthcoming, were it only a basket of fine figs or a garland of flowers, and for Annette particularly, her mother always made an extra effort. The birthday of the little girl fell in June, that month when all the world is dressed in flowers, and when the sky above seems to bend its bluest arch. On this occasion, Annette was to have a party, her very first, and all the children from the neighboring plantations had been bidden, and Papa had made a special trip to New Orleans and come home with some wonderful and mysterious packages, which had been quickly hidden away. At last the day arrived, and Annette felt it to be the happiest one she had ever known. To be nine years old and to have a party. Just think of that, Auguste, she cried as she helped the little boy to dress. Auguste was thinking of it with so much glee that it made the dressing of him more than usually difficult, and Annette turned to little Pierre. But his whole attention was given to keeping a secret, for Mama had said that Annette was not to know what her present was to be till they were all gathered at the table for breakfast. But he knew, did little Pierre, and it was a hard burden not to tell Sister Annette. At last the little ones were ready, and Annette had seen that the simple fare, which formed the breakfast, fruit and hominy, with coffee for the father and mother, was on the table. Such a clamor as arose. Oh, mother, let me tell. No, let me. Oh, Sister Annette. But they got no further, for Annette herself pulled the cover off a big box which laid on her chair, and there within lay a white dress, oh, such a pretty one, and a little pair of slippers with long, narrow ribbons to lace them crisscross about the ankles, and most lovely of all, a long blue sash which had on its two ends a fringe of gold. Oh, dearest mother, cried Annette, was there ever anything so lovely? And the little broad queen's pointing to the little slippers, and a fan. Oh, mother, and you too, father. How can I thank you both enough? Her father kissed her fondly and said, My little daughter repays me every day. The mother was well contented with Annette's pleasures for all the pains she had taken. And, Sister Annette, see, I gave you the fan. And, oh, sister, look at the pretty mouchoir that is from me. And the happy Annette kissed and thanked, and they were all so pleased that breakfast was quite forgotten and would have grown cold if Black Mimi had not put her head in at the door to remind them of it. When Annette had put on the new birthday dress, laced the slippers around her slender ankles, and held the fan and kerchief, she ran into her mother's room to show her the effect. See, Mama, it just fits me. And she gave the small skirts a toss and a pat, while her mother turned from the table where she had been standing with a small casket in her hand. Dearest Annette, 
said she, in quite a solemn voice, I shall let you wear today what my father gave to me, saying that one day it was to be thine. When you are grown to be a big girl, it shall be yours to have always. But today you shall wear it, because you are my good child, and I love you fondly. As Madame Valvier spoke, she clasped about Annette's neck the pearl necklace, the one remnant of the packet of jewels which had come from France and which had been drawn on when crops failed or for the purchase of slaves or for some of the many needs in a new country where money is scarce. Oh, Mama, and Annette's voice was low with pleasure as she gently touched the rows of shining pearls, which seemed far too costly a jewel for the neck of a little girl and quite out of place over the modest frock. Are these really for me some day? Did Grandpere say it should be so? And Annette listened while her mother told her of her grandfather's injunction and how old Marie had hidden them in Annette's own clothes and saved them from the highwaymen. The time passed quickly before the little guests began to arrive, for it was to be an afternoon party, and some were brought by boat on the bayou, while others rode on pillions behind Black Philippe or Jean, as the case might be, sitting very still so that the best frocks would not be rumpled. Many games they played in the long, cool galleries or on the grass before the house. Ball was one of them, and when they were tired of this, they played at hide-and-seek, finding many a good and secret nooks among the trees and wax myrtle shrubs, which were so bushy and so green. What shall we play next? asked Annette, anxious that her guests should have a good time. And someone suggested, Hugh, sweet Hugh, that game of many verses, which has been played high and low through so many centuries and all countries. The children made a pretty sight as circling in a ring, they sang merrily, Come up, sweet Hugh, come up, dear Hugh, come up and get the ball. I will not come, I may not come, without my bonny boys all. Even after the tragic death of Sweet Hugh, their voices rang out clearly till the last verse. And all the bells of Mary France without men's hands were rung, and all the books of Mary France were read without men's tongue. Never was such a burial since Adam's days begun. Then, half frightened at their own game, they scampered into the house where Madame Valvier was awaiting them and were spread on the trestle boards where all the dainties so loved of children, fresh figs with cream, sweet chocolate, little cakes made of nuts and honey, and right in the center, a great round birthday cake with a dove on the very top. At this last touch, Annette was as much surprised as the other children, and in answer to her wondering look, her mother said, Your father brought it from New Orleans. It is his gift to you. After it had been admired, Annette cut the first piece, and the merry meal seemed over all too quickly, for the children, who had to take their way homewards, reluctant to have an end put to such unusual festivities, and not half aware of the necessity of being safe in their own homes before nightfall. When the last one had gone, Annette took off her unaccustomed finery, and, holding in her hands the splendid necklace, looked with wonder on the round globes of pearls, which showed on their satiny faces the shifting tones of rose, blue, 
pale green and yellow. Ah, oh, mother, she sighed, to think that so beautiful a thing should be mine. Remember always, little daughter, that it was first my mother's portion, then mine, and shall be yours, never to part with. Of a truth, dear mother, I should wish to keep it always. But, and here she hesitated, you know the other jewels which Grandpere gave have all gone. Those were my own, but this is different and should be kept always, except in case of gravest need. Gravest need? What is that, Mamma? And Annette's blue eyes looked up solemnly into her mother's face. Does it mean to save a life, Mamma? Madame Valvier, hardly appreciating the earnest little soul which was listening to her words, answered, Yes, to save a life or honor. Now, put it in its box and come with me till I show you where it is hidden. In a small room, where the children kept their few playthings, some rude toys, some bright shells and beans, Madame Valvier paused, and, stooping, took from beneath the window a small board, which disclosed a box-like cupboard lined with lead. Here it is kept with the rest of our treasures, Annette, the papers which belong to your father and the grants of our land. I show you this place because you have a wisdom beyond your years and are indeed my little comfort. Annette's face grew rosy with pleasure at these words, and holding her mother's hand, she whispered, I love you truly, dearest Mamma, and I am the happiest girl in the world. When the little ones were in bed, Annette crept up on her father's lap and had the crowning joy of the day, a long story of his childhood's days in France. And she listened entranced, as she had hundreds of times, to his descriptions of the old gray chateau at Etaps, the rose garden with its sundial, and best of all, to the tales of how he and her mother used to scull down the broad, shallow canache, and then at the river's mouth search among the rocks and seaweed for shrimps, while out at sea the big ships went sailing past, with their white or brown sails swelling with the fresh wind. Even with the interest she felt in the story, poor Annette, tired with so much pleasure, nestled lower and lower in her father's arms, and finally her head fell on his shoulder. She sleeps, he said, poor little girl, fairly tired out with too much happiness. And taking her in his strong arms, he carried her off to her room, where she was soon settled in her bed, the process of undressing, hardly waking her. Chapter 6 With each succeeding year, there were more and more settlers coming to the flowery land of Louisiana. If they had flocked thither in the time of the regent, that clever and witty intriguer, they came more eagerly during the reign of Louis XV, so shallow a king that it is hard to conceive how he won the name of the Well-Beloved. It was a strange company which made up the population of the Crescent City, not only those from Paris, with their elegances and velvet coats, beneath which beat such loyal hearts, but rubbing shoulders with them in street and café, were many a far rougher exterior who had come down from the settlements in Canada and learned to adore the little city, which was so different from the homes which they had left in the cold north. Yet each and every one of these marquises from France, or pioneer from Canada, or even the sad-faced Acadian refugee who had been welcomed to these hospitable shores 
had a heart which beat for France alone. With but the least assistance, they would have swept the gulf and made themselves masters of that inland sea, and not only held the possessions of the mother country on land, but added to them. Frenchmen in language and in their hearts, they put up with the expulsion of the beloved Ursuline sisters, since the mother country so willed it, only allowing themselves the liberty of giving vent to their feelings by indulging in such unlimited number of satirical songs, burlesques, and pasquadades, as they were called. Little did they know, as they trod the white streets of the city, the deadly blow to those same stout hearts which France was plotting, France, whom they loved so fondly and whom they trusted so implicitly. Completely dominated by his prime minister, Choizamba, Louis XV followed where this ugly, brilliant, and constant man led, and trafficked first with Austria and then with Spain, till in 1761, Choizamba put in shape his famous Pacte de Fame, which united all the royalties of Bourbon blood, and which formed into one great band the thrones of France, Spain, Turin, Naples, and Sicily. Although Choizamba had the audacity to frame this agreement, and Louis XV had the folly to sign it, they did not have the courage to proclaim it, and so it remained a secret for several years. It was not till October 1764 that the news arrived at New Orleans that Louisiana had, by secret treaty, been ceded to Spain, and instructions were to send Monsieur Diabati, the governor, to hand over to the envoy of Spain, who would shortly arrive, the whole colony and its possessions. The blow was stunning. At first it could not be credited. To be tossed like a plaything from France to Spain, that cowardly Spain, who had never assisted them in any way, who had not even fought to get them, whom they had outwitted and overmatched in every contest. This was too much. Not many hours elapsed before the city was in a ferment. Groups gathered on the street corners and loudly denounced the proceedings. The wine shops had excited bands who declaimed in passionate language against both king and country that could treat a colony in such fashion, and the chorus which rose and swelled protested that it could not be borne. Swift pirogues carried the news among the plantations which lay along the bayous, while men on horseback went to those in the interior. Meetings were called in the parishes first, and then a convention was planned in New Orleans itself, to which every parish in the state was to send delegates. The subject was to be discussed, and then the king was to be informed of this cruel, this awful thing that he was doing, and he was to be petitioned to listen to the voice which echoed his own tongue, and which under every trial had spoken but loyal words of him. Every parish sent its most notable men, and of these, Monsieur Valvier, Annette's father, was one. The meeting at New Orleans was a gathering of all that was wise and distinguished throughout the whole state, and it was unanimously decided to send to France a delegation of three men to bear to the king himself their petition. These three men left for France on the first vessel which sailed, 
and one can imagine the passionate nature of the appeal which they carried with them, and which the whole colony besought the king to let them die as they had lived, Frenchmen, to their heart's core. Think of the feeling of relief which swelled every heart as the crowds gathered to see the envoys depart, bearing the message to France and to their king. Not one doubted, but that the eloquence of Jean Mahat, who headed it, would win back their love state from the hated Spaniard, and that he would speedily return with the joyful news, and that once more it would be French land for Frenchmen. To the doors of France are laid many acts of cruelty and oppression, but there is no sadder story than the grief and humiliation to which this little delegation was subjected. For one whole year they waited, were put off from day to day, with first one excuse and then another, and at last, sick and heartbroken, sailed back to New Orleans without ever having seen the king nor presented their petition. Even though their chief envoy did not return and there was no news of the success of their petition, the people of Louisiana seemed to have no doubt as to its success. Judge then of the fever of excitement into which they were thrown when her letter arrived in July 1766, saying that Don Antonio de Jara, the Spanish envoy, was on his way to take possession. What should be done? Whither should they turn? New meetings were called. The militia was strengthened as much as possible. But month after month passed away, and Don Antonio did not arrive, so that the people quieted down and hope bubbled up afresh. One morning in February 1767, when the commandant awoke, he found anchored below the Belize, that old fortress at the mouth of the river, a large frigate flying the Spanish colors. On board was Don Antonio, with his personal suite, two companies of Spanish infantry, and some Capuchin monks. In March, in a frightful storm of wind and rain, they landed on the levee in New Orleans and were met by a sullen crowd of citizens and by a mass of unwilling French troops. The Spanish envoy, haughty, severe in aspect, and a martinet in demanding that differential ceremonial etiquette which was so firmly engrafted into Spanish nature either could not or would not understand the feelings which prompted the ardent Louisianians to cling to their nationality. He expected the people to change at his coming, their flag and their allegiance, the soldiers their service, and all to hasten to assume the Spanish yoke. He could not understand their refusal to do so, and when the superior consul of the city requested him to show his credentials, he abruptly refused, although he agreed to defer taking possession till more Spanish soldiers were sent to him. This was at least the form to which he agreed, but he proceeded to get control as far as possible, visiting in turn all the military posts and replacing the French flag and the French commanders with Spanish ones. Over New Orleans only did the French flag still wave. It may be easily understood that such high-handed deeds were not accomplished without protest on the part of the people of Louisiana. Curtailed of their possessions on every side, for by the Treaty of Paris much had been ceded to the English, they proposed to make as stubborn a resistance as possible. 
In the remote parishes, the feeling flamed almost higher than at New Orleans itself, since the sight of the detested Spanish flag was an ever-present insult. During the year which had been passed since the deputation had been sent to Paris, bearing the memorial to the king, Monsieur Valvier had wasted neither time nor effort to arouse those with whom he came in contact and keep them rigorously opposed to Spanish rule. There were stormy meetings in the parish to where he belonged, in which he was always an impassioned leader. There were secret meetings at his and the neighboring plantations. He became gloomy, a man with but one thought in his head, the disgrace of belonging to Spain. It was small wonder that, with its head so distraught, the plantation fell into neglect. The crops of indigo and tobacco failed, since the master's eye no longer kept watch on careless servants. Madame Valvier's ill health increased as the winter season approached, and on little Annette fell more and more the care of the family and home. Scant crops made scant money, and it was only by unceasing care that Annette kept the active little brothers clothed and fed, and saw that the languid mother had her fresh fruit and café au lait, and that her favorite gowns of delicate white were kept mended and ever fresh. Nor were these all her duties. At evening, when her father returned depressed and miserable from a never-ending discussion with neighboring planters as to the ignominy of their lot, it was Annette who met and tried to cheer him. She had ever something ready for him, were it only a bowl of fresh figs, and the earnest child at last became the confidant of the despairing man. One memorable evening he returned later than usual, and to Annette's surprise and pleasure his eyes were bright and shining, and he carried his head proudly and with confidence. Tenderly embracing Annette, he cried, At last, at last I have prevailed on these neighbors who hate and yet fear the Spanish, all is ready, and tomorrow we at least will show Don Ujona that there are loyal Frenchmen enough in Louisiana to refuse to live under the Spanish flag and his detestable rule. But, Father, what is it you would do? Lean closer, my child, for none here must learn of this till everything is ready, and we leave for the city. Does Mother know, dear Father? No, Annette, I dare not tell her. Her constant illness makes her timorous. The young girl pressed closer to his knee, her large, serious eyes fixed on his face. So wrapped up was the man in his own thoughts that he knew not the heavy burden he was laying on the already overcrowded young shoulders. To her, the father unfolded his plans. Well, you know the cruel blow that has been dealt to us from France, and how the Spaniard, Don Antonio, has sought to make Spaniards of us all, true-born Frenchmen that we are, how he has hoisted the Spanish flag and manned all our forts with Spanish soldiers. Tomorrow evening there will be start from this plantation. Monsieur Byron, myself, and all the owners of the plantations in this parish, with such of their men as they can arm, and by boat we will go down to the bayou, stopping at each plantation as we go, and gathering men together till we reach New Orleans. Oh, father, interrupted Annette breathlessly, will you take an army into the city? So I hope, and these, with the loyal French guard and the citizens, 
will enable us to sweep onwards, and Don Antonio will find what manner of men he has to deal with, and we will not rest till he is safely confined within the walls of Belize. In the excitement of his story, Monsieur Valvier's voice rose, till there came from the room beyond, where Madame Valvier lay, the sleepy question as to why they talked so late. Putting his finger to his lip to warn Annette, he replied, I but tell a tale to Annette, who will go now to bed. Kissing her fondly good night, he whispered in her ear, Remember to tell not a word, Annette, and least I do not see you alone again, I say farewell, till we put the hatred spaniard where he will do no further harm. Although Annette crept to bed, her eyes for a long time stared into the darkness. She feared not for the success of her father's mission, but least in some way he be hurt. She saw, as he described it, Don Ujorna safely confined in the dreaded Belize, and she rejoiced in her childish heart over the grand part her father was to take in keeping Louisiana for the French. When the next night came, she peeped cautiously out from between the casements and saw dark shadows take their places in the pirogues drawn up at the landing and silently paddled down the bayou. She saw her father in the leading boat, and with him were several of their own men, and in the flaring light of the single torch she saw the gleaming of the guns. In a silent adieu she waved her hand, even though she knew that her father could not see her, and confiding on his belief and assurance of success, she fell into a deep and dreamless sleep, and over the whole plantation rested an absolute quiet. But her father, ah, the sadness of that night trip. The few men who had started with him from the plantation, in the hope that they would be joined by many more of wealth and power, were cruelly disabused of their beliefs. There was but a handful more, but in the small group was the spirit of an army, and it was hoped that Don Ujorna could be surprised just before dawn, and with the first successful blow, many would hasten to join the victorious party. It was the old story of a forlorn hope. In some way, Don Ujourna had been apprised of the uprising, and the party had barely set food on the levee at New Orleans before they were surrounded and taken prisoners by a strong party of Spanish soldiers. Monsieur Vervier, as the leader, was not detained in the city, but sent up the bayou to Fort St. John, a desolate spot on the shores of Lake Pontchartrain, at the head of the bayou St. John. During the first two days of his imprisonment, Monsieur Valvier was stunned. He seemed incapable of realizing the misfortune which had befallen, not himself alone, but the little family at home. Too late, he saw that the lukewarm policy of the others, whom he had tried to induce to join him, was not all selfish, and as happened so often to the enthusiast, he saw too late the folly of his actions. It was the stinging thought of these helpless sufferers at home which at last aroused him, and spurred him on to see in their welfare could not be in some way assured. The intendant in charge of the fort was hard and cold, but, as Monsieur Valvier soon learned, was not averse to accepting a ransom. Indeed, he informed Monsieur Valvier of this fact himself, and allowed him to send a letter home telling of his personal safety and that his liberty could be bought. Till this letter arrived, 
the plantation on the bayou, Gentilly, had been a sad place. When, as one day after another passed, and Monsieur Valvier did not return, Annette, not knowing what to do, told her mother of the uprising, and Madame Valvier, with health already undermined, became so seriously ill that poor Annette knew not which way to turn. One or two of the slaves had strayed home, and from them Annette had learned that at least her father was alive, and at last came the letter which told that he could be ransomed if a sufficient sum of money could be raised. The letter ended. Alas, dear child, I know too well that there is naught left which may be turned into money to procure my freedom. I see too late that I have been led away from my duties to my little ones and their mother. God grant that they may be kept in safety. As for me, my heart is breaking. Madame Valvier was too ill to give Annette any counsel. All day long, the child kept saying to herself, My father must be ransomed, but how? Where shall I get the gold? Oh, Mama, if you could but help me. At last, passing through the children's room, while waiting on her mother, Annette's eyes fell upon the boards, which concealed the leaden-lined box containing the papers and necklace. The pearl necklace, she cried softly to herself. Why have I not thought of it before? Removing the cover, she felt hurriedly within the enclosure to assure herself that it was safe. The rest of the day, as she went about her duties, her one thought was of the way to get it to her father. And at last, she decided that she must go with it herself. There was no one whom she could trust with this price of her father's freedom. And her heart was full of the thought of saving him, so that there was no room for fear. She determined to start that night, and, used from infancy to management of a boat, she did not hesitate as to the means of traveling. But her mother, how to leave her? She called the woman from the kitchen, an old slave, but a faithful one, and bade her sleep within the next room, so that if Madame called, she should hear her. For, said Annette, see, Tignan, I must go on a message for my father. When my mother wakens, tell her that I shall soon return. Remember, Tignan, soon return. As soon as it was dark, Annette took from its hiding place the necklace, and as the cool, milky globes slipped through her fingers, she kissed them, saying, Dear father, to think that these may save thy life. I remember my mother said that they were never to be parted with, save for life or honor. Perhaps this time it may be both, but I cannot tell. For a moment she was at a loss how to carry them, and then putting them about her neck, she snapped the clasp securely and drew over them the waist of her gown, which was fashioned to come high in the neck. Tis the easiest and the simplest way, and certainly none would think that such a thing lay beneath my calico frock. She kissed the little brothers and sister, and bade Pierre take good care of them till she should return, whispering in his ear, I go for father, but tell of this to no one till I return. And Pierre, with his wide staring eyes fixed on her face, could only say, I will promise. At the landing, Annette chose the smallest and the lightest pirogue, and with the caution one would have expected from an older and wiser head, put in the bottom an extra paddle and a small basket of food. She pushed off the little dugout, turning its head downstream, looked back with confidence, saying in her brave young heart, Shortly 
I shall return, and with my father. All night the child floated and paddled down the silent and lonely bayou, often terrified by the strange night sounds which came from the swamps, and occasionally cheered by the light of glimmering in the window of some of the planters' homes on the shore. When she was most alarmed, she would reassure her little trembling heart by putting her hand on the breast of her frock, beneath which lay the necklace, and by whispering to herself the beloved name of Father. The rising sun saw her heading her boat into the small channel which led into Bayou St. John, and it was late afternoon when the weary Annette saw frowning before her the rough palisades which enclosed Fort St. John. The soldier on duty could scarcely believe his eyes when the little pirogue came alongside the guai and was still more astonished when with trembling voice Annette said, Sir, may I please see the governor? The governor? Why, what should the governor do here? Who are you? And what would you with the governor? I have business with the governor, sir. At this reply, the man laughed long and loud, and poor Annette was ready to weep with disappointment and fatigue. Then remembering that at any rate her father was within those walls, she plucked up courage and began again. If Monsieur the governor is not here, is there any great general here? The soldier laughed again and said below his breath, Great general? No. But the great surintendant is here if you can do your business with him. And there was another burst of laughter as the burly man looked at the slender form standing before him. Take me to him, please, said she, and she gave one touch to the frock below which lay the precious heirloom as the soldier turned to lead the way within the enclosure. Ho, Roguet, he called. This lady comes on business with Monsieur the Intendant. And poor frightened Annette, was passed along mid the rude jests of the soldiers till she reached an ante-room to which was attached the small office of the intendant. At last a voice said, You may enter. And Annette, who between fright and fatigue was ready to weep, found herself standing before a man with flashing eyes in a brilliant scarlet and gold uniform who was looking at her with unconcealed interest. Well, child, what would you with me? And Annette, raising her head, bravely answered, I come to ransom my father, Monsieur Davier. The intendant frowned, and surely the pale child before him, in a simple calico gown, with empty hands and eyes full of unshed tears, hardly seemed able to ransom a bird, much less a political prisoner. The intendant's voice was harsh and cold, as he said, Ransom means gold, child gold or lambs. Alas, Monsieur, I have neither, said the trembling little girl, but I thought perhaps, and she drew from its place of concealment, the splendid necklace. The intendant could scarcely conceal a start. How came you by this, he asked, letting the rich strings glide through his fingers. "'Twas the marriage portion of my grandmother in France, then of my mother also, and was to be mine." I will give it to you for my father, Monsieur Valvier. The sight of the jewels recalled to the intendant scenes in his native Spain, where the Spanish grandees loved to ruffle its laces and jewels of the choicest description, and where the dusky Spanish beauties often chose pearls, since these milky gems but served to throw out the fire of their eyes and the rich tones of their olive skins.
As he mused, passing the pearls between his fingers, poor Annette was torn with anxiety, lest the necklace should fall short of the ransom desired. "'Oh, Monsieur, is it not enough?' she cried, one trembling hand holding the other. "'We have naught else. My mother is ill. I came alone.' and the tears so bravely held back now fell in showers. The intendant had no idea of giving up the necklace, yet was not wholly cruel. So, striking on a bell, he called to the orderly who answered it, Bring Valvier hither. The sound of the words caused Annette to wipe her eyes, and in a moment, with a scream of joy, she rushed into the arms of her father, whose wonder at her presence froze the words on his lips. Monsieur Valvier, said the intendant, you are free. The ransom provided by your daughter is sufficient. But you must give me your parole that you will never again bear arms against the Spanish flag, and that you will accept regulations as Spain deems best for her colonies. I give my parole, answered Monsieur Valvier. But, Annette, ransom, what had you, poor child? Annette's face was wreathed in smiles as she whispered in his ear, The Pearl Necklace, dearest father. End of section 7